So hello, my name is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and this is the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. What's up, Ilan? Hey, Khadija. What's going on? Excited for this second season. We opened up with collaboration with the Ho in the Know podcast, talking about the Foster sesta Act, followed by Dr. Joshua Bennett in his latest book, Ode. And today, I'm really excited that we have Frank Pasquale, He's a noted expert on the law of artificial intelligence, algorithms, and machine learning. He is a prolific and nationally regarded scholar whose work focuses on how information is used across a number of areas, including health law, commerce, and tech. His book, The Black Box Society, The Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information, was published in 2015 and has been recognized internationally as a landmark study on how big data affects our lives. And now we're here to discuss his forthcoming new book, New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI. I'm so thrilled, Frank, that you had you were able to come on to uh, the show. And I would love if you could say a little bit, I read your academic bio, but if you could say a little bit more about who you are and your book and your own words. Well, thanks so much, Khadija. And, and yes, I, I use he, him. And um, yeah, this is a, you know, the book really is the combination of a lot of years of research that came out of uh, the reception of Black Box Society. So after I published Black Box Society, which was a pretty critical look at the tech and finance industries, um, I was really lucky because it did strike a chord with folks both in law and out and in areas like computer science and humanities and you know some business folks and other policymakers. And as I talk with them, I felt like what I really needed to come up with and what, you know, as a community would be great to rally around are some visions of positive technological advance for the future, you know, how we can imagine and put that forward. And so that was sort of the the big motivation behind writing New Laws of Robotics. Um, it also, I mean, just in terms of my background, um, I've taught law for about 15 years now. I've also done some advisory work for different governmental groups, you know, trying to uh, give policymakers a sense of what's happening on the ground and sort of rapidly moving uh, technologies and, and efforts to regulate them. And I've also just been very lucky to be in contact with lots of uh, people that are affected by technology and just hearing their stories. I remember after I started writing about Google, I just kept hearing about people that were uh, had results that they were embarrassed by or upset about or that were lies about them or defamatory or worse. And they just said, you know, I can't, get anything done with this giant company, you know, help me. And, you know, this is an area where like over time, a lot of folks like Kerry Goldberg, others have, you know, devised responses, but I found that, you know, just in trying to connect people and to try to understand how technology was either helping or hurting folks was really a big goal of mine in, in research and writing. Thank you for sharing that. And in preparation for today, I went back and I was rereading Black Box Society. And I was just thinking about how you published that in 2015. And one of the things that you open up with is you're saying the the law so aggressively protective of secrecy in the world of commerce is increasingly silent when it comes to the privacy of persons. And that the book is kind of focused on this incongru- incongruity, looking at the why secrecy is so important to Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the social implications of those practices. And then kind of comparing five years later, you're putting out new laws of robotics and saying the book will dispute both triumphalism in the tech community and minimalism among policymakers in order to reshape public understanding of the state's role in cultivating technological advance. And I was just wondering if you could share, you know, in your mind and your perception, what are the things that have shifted 
over these five years. Because in part, it seems like there's a, a narrative correction here. Um, mm. But also, mm. you know, I'm thinking about who is the audience, because in the wake since since uh, Black Box Society, there have been these movements around fairness, accountability and transparency. There has been pushback in different spaces, but relative to the pace of kind of secrecy and automation, you know, I don't know if it it's quite congruent, as you say. So I'm just curious about how you're thinking about this book um, in the five year aftermath of Black Box. I'm so glad you mentioned those two quotes because I think they really do get at the core of a lot of what's happening in the two books and and particularly tying it into data and privacy because I think it really does come down to a question of how data is gathered about us and how it's used and sort of responding to that. And so I think that the worry that I had out of Black Box was that we were being monitored constantly. And a lot of this monitoring was not, it was being marketed as, if we know you better, we can serve you better. But in reality, the business goal often was, if we know you better, we can replace you with a machine. Okay. And and that's like, it reminds me of that old um, Twilight Zone with the copy of the cook, the, this, uh, this aliens come to earth and they have a, a book called To Serve Man, you know, and they, they say, oh, we're trying to serve mm-hmm. you. To, and, and then ultimately it turns out it's a cookbook, right? And so, and so I feel like this was, the idea behind it was to say, there are so many ways in which they want to use the data, those collecting data want to use the data to replace workers, to replace human interaction and other forms of human judgment and evaluation. And let's question that. But what I also wanted to do is I wanted to write something that was a little more hopeful saying, yeah, sometimes the promise here is great. I mean, and certainly there are, there are positions in where maybe the job is just not that great a job and where, you know, robots and AI could provide some relief to folks and could provide some opportunities for folks to do other types of work. And so I think that that was sort of the idea behind that, that sort of shift. It is funny you should mention like the, the five years after publication of Black Box Society, because there was recently a, a group of commentaries published in the journal Big Data and Society about that. And I, and I did an interview with the Claremont uh, Review, a few, or not the Claremont Review, it was at Claremont Mechanic College with a, with a group of undergraduates there. Um, on you know the, the book, and I was I've been very disappointed at you know the policy impact of Black Box Society in that you know a lot of things that we thought were going to do um, uh, rebalance the the playing field haven't really done that so much. So what I wanted to try to do with uh, New Laws of Robotics was try to look at well why do we have an economic system that so privileges what these sort of large tech and finance firms do, and how could we rebalance that? So it's almost like saying. Whereas Black Box was really focused on the law and politics, this new book, The New Laws of Robotics, is saying, ah, let's look at the economics underneath it, because really the economics is driving a lot of what is happening technologically nowadays. Thank you. And I'm curious, you know, I'm with you on this question of human expertise, and I'm, and I'm excited to talk about one of the, your, your uh, last chapter and thinking about like the philosophy of the culture of automation. Um, but I'm also thinking about, I, I know when we were speaking informally, you were saying that you had more of a social justice intentional emphasis in this new book in comparison to Black Box Society. And I was just thinking about today, somebody forwarded me an article from Gotham about how the decision to, to enroll in full-time remote schooling in New York City has definitely fallen amongst, uh, along racial and socioeconomic lines. 
with black mm. and Hispanic families opting out of in real life learning um, due to a lack of trust in the system governance and of the DOE in particular and feeling like there's not fair testing um, and just that the whole system is kind of screwed, right? And so I feel like that's an interesting example in the sense that, you know, now uh, that means that I'll, and even for my own family, because I, I opted in for all of my kids are doing remote learning. And what I find is that now all of their relationships with teachers are mediated by screens and like enterprise video software, which I also know is also surveilling them. And there's all these privacy concerns. But also, I think part of the fear is not just COVID, but the realization that a lot of these centers for expertise were kind of killing us before and criminalizing us before. So how do we center this human expertise while also doing the work of um, repair with a lot of people who feel uh, marginalized or harmed or a site of extraction in relationship to these institutions that are being eroded by automation? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that is a really important angle in it. And it's something I really try to address in the first chapter in terms of saying that I don't think expertise and professions are perfect as they stand. I think that what, what I'm worried about is that I think that, you know, the flaws that are embedded in current professions and current institutions of expertise, those flaws are leading to, a, I think, two divergent paths of response. And one is um, the concept of AI and machine learning experts as meta experts who can stand above the current experts and say, here's what you're doing right and wrong. So to use your example of like the decision about in-person versus um, remote schooling, if one way to sort of evaluate and judge whether the experts in power are doing the right thing would be to say, well, hey, we don't trust DOE, but let's call in some people from Google and Facebook who could do epidemiological modeling for us, and they'll make the call, right? And I worry that that is a lot of many times that the attack on experts, distrust in experts, the sort of the um, uh, crisis of expertise that the sociologist Gil Ayal identifies, all of those culminate in an invitation to technical experts to come in and replace those in education, law, uh, policy, many other areas. The vision that I'm looking for is one where instead of thinking about uh, computer science and AI as meta experts that could come in and fix problems in current expert systems and professions, we try to build up a system of uh, co-governance. And the co-governance has to involve people from many different uh, technical backgrounds and from many different non-technical backgrounds and communities. And that's what I'm ultimately hoping for is that, you know, that, that worry about the bias and disconnection of current experts in chapter one that I, I sort of examined there, I think gets responded to in chapter seven, where I talk a lot about how to rebuild a political economy of expertise that's much more inclusive and that brings in you know a lot more voices and, and that puts money toward it. Because ultimately, I think it's a question of money, right? I, mean, I think it's a question of like putting our money where our mouth is when we say we want community engagement. Are we... Uh, it's not just like, oh, let's invite the community to comment on how we make these decisions. It's more to our like, how do we like pay people to be involved in the decisions? How do we sort of build that into their lives, build that into work and labor so that um, we can hear from them? I, th I think that's that's a real uh, message of, of, the, of the book. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about um, in relationship to ed tech is that a lot of these 
tech companies, even if like, for example, with Zoom was, you know, maybe not thinking about a pandemic, but was designed as enterprise video conference software. It was ready for this moment when, you know, K through 12, higher education desperately needed um, an, a, an easy user interface where they could facilitate remote learning. And now you have all of these universities that are kind of indebted to Zoom licenses. And so I'm just, and then also uh, right at the peak of the pandemic, when so much of the content moderation became automated um, because of the social distancing orders enacted in the global South, where a lot of those labor forces are, are exist. And so I'm just wondering, what does it look like to not just have a system of co-governance, but like strategically, are there seeds of something that you see happening right now or that you feel like we can build, you know, just even thinking to the upcoming academic year for 20, what is that, 21, 22? Like, is there a way that we can renegotiate um, those terms with either the, the the software licensing itself or the way in which we're thinking about the university um, and how we can organize different arrangements where people feel like they're not risking their life, but they are also not just becoming indebted to whatever software is at hand. Like, what are these moments where you feel like this kind of new policy, maybe not new, but this policy position could be pushed? Does that make sense? That's, oh, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about it because I think it's a really, it's, I think being ready for crisis is critical. And, you know, and I, and I don't feel like I was particularly ready for this crisis in, in exactly those terms, because, you know, when, when we went all online in, uh, I mean, I'm a university, I, I teach at, you know, the law school I was teaching in Maryland, and now I'm teaching at Brooklyn. And it was fascinating how in the moment of emergency, things just sort of went online. There was not really a deliberative time to say, well, maybe we should rethink how we're doing this, or we should think deeply about how is technology going to be uh, either emancipatory or a real burden on some people, right? And at the, at the beginning, I think one way in which some universities tried to deal with that was just to say, well, it's all going to be pass-fail grading. So, you know, so we're not going to do our usual system of stratification in ranking and rating individuals because we realize this is going to be differentially impacting different people. I think moving forward, you know, in terms of thinking about how does this work, part of it's got to be a increasing awareness of how the, the, the broadcasting of educational content online, how that is going to be better for some uh, students, worse for others how to make sure that those it's worse for, that we still are trying to reach out to them and help them. And I think in terms of the, the licensing of the software and procurement, you raise a really interesting issue. I mean, although I haven't really come across too many examples of concrete problems caused by um, adoption of the technology that's been, uh, that have been made objects of contestation by faculty, but I mean, I think that, you, but I certainly do see them. You know, I see complaints about them all the time. And I think the question is like, when people have complaints and when they have sort of a personal uh, encounter that with the technology that is like really troubling. Like I remember seeing this uh, woman online that was like crying after uh, a certain. And it was uh, Proctor Proctor.edu, I think. Yeah, after this proctoring software had, you know, she was told that like, oh, we can't credit your exam because you were speaking to yourself about, you know, you're you're sort of mouthing the words aloud as you were because it helps you to think um that's a good example where essentially you know that that sort of it shouldn't simply be on her 
and on her professor to sort of make an exception for her. What really that has to be about is an overarching rethinking of how is this technology being used and how are we going to like build into it the affordances that we had when people were doing this proctoring? And finally, you know, is it does it make sense at all, right? I mean, on some level, what I think is so interesting here, and this gets to a point that I think Audrey Waters made many years ago, which is that um, so much of this ed tech, it's not really being used to revolutionize and improve our educational systems. Rather, it's sort of like this way of putting a Band-Aid on something that's already a bit broken, right? So it's like in thinking about, for example, someone being proctored in a test or being watched so they didn't have any additional material. In a way, you have to wonder, well, maybe this, this whole model is broken and trying to do it by machine is just enabling the broken model to continue. Right. And, and I think or maybe that there's, you know, when you when you're in the midst of a pandemic, maybe you should be rethinking things on a more fundamental level in terms of what's happening in this, this scenario. But I mean, it's it's a really I, I'm glad that you're, you're asking the question in terms of like, we've all had this big technological disruption sort of foisted on us. And my original take on it is sort of has, was sort of to think, I don't think that this technological disruption is going to help those who want to disrupt education because everyone feels how badly it's being done now. But you're also right to, to suggest that in the U.S., you know, this, co- this pandemic may be lasting through 2021, in which case, even though there might be a lot of critics of the tech who don't want to use it at all, it's still incumbent on us to figure out um, how to minimize the harm, how to sort of do harm reduction of this tech while it's being foisted on everybody. Well, harm reduction, but I'm also thinking, I mean, in the spirit of not so much silver lining, but like what are opportunities to find um, kind of beneficially reimagining certain kind of socio-technical systems. So looking at that proctor.edu video that went viral, I mean, one of the, the responses I've seen from academic Twitter is like, you're teaching wrong if you if if you need to check for cheating during your test. I mean, I guess that's kind of d- depends on the on the class. Like maybe not so much for um, bio one hundred and one, but maybe yes for you know graduate black studies. You know, depending on what what is the 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 domain expertise. But you know, to me, people's experience of technology is so stratified, like everything else. So I definitely see the wetware in terms of the human capacity to. Um, implement these technologies as a way to augment human experience being done in private schools or the more elite public schools. But for so many children attending public school, um, schools are just really a site of like disciplinary control. And that's when you get the the teacher calling child services and the cops on the kid with the toy gun in the background. Um, but with one of the things that was highlighted in that that Proctor video was also how ableist it was. You know, this yes. inability, right, to understand that somebody would need to read these questions out loud or not making um, eye contact. And so there's a really well-explored area of people critiquing that. But I'm wondering just, you know, even now being back to Brooklyn and being a professor at Brooklyn Law School, like, do you see any opportunities to seize on as so many people are um, at home or like within their actual like geographic neighborhood to bring in disability rights people on people who are studying uh, critical disability theory into the kind of practice and development of these laws or these technologies you know do you see a basis to to do some of what you're imagining in a lot of this book 
I think that, you know, one of the places where I have emphasized this type of uh, intervention has been in my work more with a federal advisory committee um, than in you know my new university environment, because I feel like what's odd about being, you know, just, I just moved schools this year and it's kind of, it's hard to try to govern in any sort of direction um, when you're new and when you're not meeting anybody in person, uh, which is it's hard. So, but, but what I have been lucky to do is like within my uh, work with this federal advisory committee on the national committee on vital and health statistics, that's, that's other work, advisory work I do for the federal government. And that we convened a hearing back in September about um, COVID and tracing apps. And so that was an area where we brought in some really interesting voices, people like Mary Gray of Microsoft, Sean McDonald of CIGI, um, Jason Wang, who studies the, the Taiwanese response to COVID. And we started thinking about, you know, how in the future with pandemics, are we going to bring together people to be behind an overall response that can be informed by technology that certainly is not an all technology response, but that can be informed by it that would stop the mess that we're in now, right? Would avoid the mess that we're in now. Because clearly this is something that like so many parts of the world, um, the North, the Americas and Europe are really struggling. India is struggling. Russia is struggling. Um, Lots of places in Asia and Africa have a lot to offer in terms of learning. I mean, Senegal has an amazing record here that, you know, we need to learn from uh, Taiwan, South Korea. And that's a place where I see some, you know, ability to uh, where I see some real opportunities to bring some of the message of the book in in order to you know bring that forward. I do think that, you know, in terms of like in education, I am much more focused in the book on the grade school and high school because I feel like that's where uh, the metaphysics and the political economy of what I'm doing come together. Okay, and, when I, and, and I think that's this book ultimately, it, if it's unique in this field, I think it's because it brings together a metaphysical view with a political economy view. It brings about the metaphysics being the importance of the human and of human contact, and the political economy being about valuing labor. And I think you can't have one without the other. I think you really have to put those two together, which is a controversial stance in a lot of places where, you know, they want to see robot rights or, you know, say, oh, robots could be just like humans, et cetera. I don't think so. And I think that, like, I, I emphasize the grade school particularly because I think that, it, you know, there's a worry I have that children in some jurisdictions might be sort of taught that, hey, a robot could just be as good a teacher as a human. So treat the robot like a human and grow up with robots and the robots are like humans. And I so worry about that because I feel like the development of that technology is so deeply implicated with corporate agendas and power agendas within, um, you know, some very unaccountable corners of government that it's it's not going to be a good <laughs> it's not a good future. And so I'm trying to avoid that sort of far future. But what I love about that question, Khadija, in terms of thinking about, you know, the immediacy and like, do you try to change like your own institution? Do you try to change things right now? Do you try to articulate a larger vision? It's it's something I'm constantly juggling, both in my own life and in the book, is when do you focus on things that are like really long term and you try to sort of change people's minds and sort of like change the culture about how you think about things like robots and AI? And when do you think about like, all right, there are people suffering because of this test software that we have and how do we stop that? Right. And that's that's just a, a constant, I think, juggle for those that work in like activist and academic fields alike. The the book is quite wide ranging. And uh, I thought it was very interesting that, that you talk about a wide variety of, of kind of 
technical objects, right? Um, and I was curious, right? It's called the New Laws of Robotics. I, I work in a lab that where most of the time we build a fair amount of robots. And like, we have our own theories about like what a robot is, but I was hoping you could articulate, like, what is a robot? This maybe is, it's it's not meant to be a like a trick question, but like, is an automated door a robot? Like, is a ro pet robot dog a robot? Like, what, what defines a robot as opposed to other kind of like technical systems people interact with in social ways or otherwise? Yeah, I think that the question of what is a robot, I just f fundamentally come down to um, sort of a machine with sensors, information processing, and actuators. So I guess my the, the origin of my question is we, we think about robots a lot in the design of robots. And one of the things we kind of don't explicitly say in, in our work is like, we don't really want to build robots with eyes, right? And like, there's ways right. that this can be deceptive, right? That like, it is telling you a thing about the thing you're interacting with that that is almost unnecessary. You can communicate a great deal of agency and emotion by a, a kind of, uh, you know, a non-living thing that's able to respond to the environment without having to use eyes because of the ways that's inherently deceptive. There's a there's a good paper that came out, I want to say a year ago, that talks about uh, cute robots as dark patterns, right? So you have Anki, which you mentioned in the book, but there was a, a kind of wide variety of these social robots that that came about. Um, and we're incredibly cute. Yes. And what that yes. does is it kind of tricks people into feeling very comfortable around these things, but then also uh, it allows them to collect all this data and people become uh, kind of enamored with them. Yes. And I'm wondering where, like, where is the line that like, we can have a system that people interact with and you talk about, uh, was it DragonBot, the one with the phone for a face? Yes, um, yeah. And and I, I thought the way you articulate there is quite quite valuable, right? That like it's used as a teaching tool for students to learn about almost the malleability of technology. Um, but I was hoping you could discuss a little bit about the line between these systems we interact with, which which can be kind of um, cooperative as opposed to um, either tricking us or taking advantage of us. Yes, you know it, it is such an interesting line to draw here. And I, I do think that this idea of cuteness as potentially a dark pattern is very enlightening. And I think that, you know, if I were to consider why I, I think like the dragon bot makes a lot of sense to me, whereas say bringing in, I also talk about a, a thing called the Saya, which was sort of, although it, it wasn't itself like a robot acting in any way autonomously, it was still, I think a test for, say, having a teacher that was really a doll, like a life-size humanized doll that could eventually have the information processing that would lead to expressions on the face that could be happy or sad or what have you. I think that what, what to me, what's fundamental about trying to draw a line here between the mechanical and the human is that I worry that when, especially children, but even human, even adults are lured into interacting with a humanoid robot as they would a human, there are some fundamental deceptions involved. And there's what I call in the book, a counterfeiting of humanity in part, because 
any, say for example, the robot feels pain and expresses pain, you know, at, at something got, that goes wrong. It's something that probably could have been programmed otherwise, right? So that's one way in which, I mean, there's a lack of authenticity that I think was, is, you know, certainly there when say a human expresses pain, right? The, I, I can't be programmed otherwise. Um, there's a vulnerability and a fragility to human embodiment that is lacking in the machine embodiment. You know, if you think, I, I give the example even of animals versus machines toward the end of the book and talk about a cat breaking its leg versus like a uh, sort of a piece of a cat robot being broken. Um, and those being very, very different processes of um, either repair uh, and, and response over time. So I think that what I'm trying to do in the book is to say, at least be conscious of this line, because I worry so much about the line being blurred, particularly online, right? I mean, online is probably where we see the most uh, examples of the blurring, where you can have bots that try to, say, pass the Turing test and just pretend that they're human beings, right? You can take have a bot that would take one of those images of a fake person from this is not a person.com, you know, that, that is sort of a deep baked thing. And then just sort of have maybe GPT three, the language model providing it with things to say uh, in a certain direction. And there are people who say, Oh, well, that's wonderful. You know, this is an example of people being able to rapidly multiply their own expressive capacities by having bots online doing that. But I think that that's fundamentally a mischaracterization. I think what's really happening there is um, computational power eclipsing human reasoning, and sort of, and also the the forms of democratization that I think are essential to the legitimacy of like an online public sphere being undermined by replication and counterfeiting of or faking of human uh, abilities and uh, responses. So that's why I'm drawing that line, um, and it is really about shaping the direction of future AI and robotics, right? I think a lot of the current discourse sort of assumes that there's this trajectory that AI and robotics is on that includes things like affective computing. And, you know, that it's it's just the role of regulators and policymakers to come in afterwards and maybe clean up the mess a little bit or put some bounds on it. My view is very different. It's really a view of industrial policy that says, let's try to actually shape where the technology goes. It has no course of its own. It has no, there's nothing that technology itself wants, you know, to sort of go against the old Kevin Kelly approach that, that it has, it, it, that it, it's ultimately a social product and that we as a society can shape where it goes and how it should develop. Robots have been a kind of ever-present fear in the cultural imagination for, for quite a while now, right? And, you know, there is this way that things that are considered robots become normalized and then become other things, right? So like a dishwashing robot just becomes a dishwasher and a yes. laundry cleaning robot becomes a laundry machine. A robot vacuum just becomes a Roomba and we find ways to reframe these things. And so you see this process by which the the like scary human replacement robot becomes kind of normalized, right? The, the automated telemachine just becomes the ATM. Um, so is it the melding of effective computing? Like, what is the thing that has shifted? Is it the monopolistic way that these things are integrated? Like, what is what is shifted about now that, like, the 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 framing is different from when this has happened in, in kind of previous historical examples of, of automation coming into people's lives? Sure. So I think there's two levels there. And I think one would be in terms of the washing machine, Roomba, other things like that. 
one of the, the things I draw on in the book is an idea of the future of labor being in unions and ultimately professionalization of fields where we want that labor to keep going and keep being done by humans and where we want AI to increase the value of that labor. I think there are other positions, other jobs out there, which will eventually be taken over by machines. And, you know, I would, and, and I think that the reason why we don't necessarily mourn or feel any sense of loss at, say, the Roomba taking over vacuuming is because, by and large, the, the job of vacuuming doesn't strike most of people as being something that implicates human values that need to be discussed, developed over time, have research journals about them, have conferences about them, discussions, et cetera. Right. I mean, and this is not to put down cleaning. It's not to say that like cleaning or logistics or transport or mining or some of the other areas in the book where I say are ideally suited for robotic um, uh, development. It's not to put them down. It's just to say that when we think about the types of positions in society where we want to have an ongoing democratic governance of them, in which people in the profession have some role as laborers in setting the direction and future governance of the area, I don't necessarily think of, ro- uh, of vacuuming as one of those things. Um, but I do think of education as one of those things, right? I do think that I want to have a teacher's union um, with people who've gone to education school or who've had sort of a chance to really reflect upon what they teach and how they teach it. I want that group to be able to uh, help decide the direction of ed tech, right? It's harder to imagine, say, a group of, uh, it's harder to imagine that in some of those other fields. However, you know, even in, say, transport, which might be seen as analogous to the vacuum, there's a lot of very interesting work to be done in terms of, like, how does the future of transport get arranged and what are the, the relative role of AI and robotics in that, right? And certainly drivers should have a voice there. Um, and it's also an area where lots of other professionals have a voice as well. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that, and this, this came out during all of the books in the 2010s that, you know, were really leading up to big debates about AI and robotics and, and job loss, like, uh, Bryn Yolfson and McAfee, uh, the, uh, second machine age, the Martin Ford book, rise of the robots, the Kaplan book, uh, humans need not apply. All of them were sort of marking out this taking of mind work as being kind of different than taking of work that was primarily um, physical in nature. So that was part of it. But I think also, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the affective computing because I think part of it as well is that I really wanted to intervene here to mark out a difference where um, affect was being colonized by and claimed by machines. Because that I think is very frequently, or maybe always, um, a, a uh, deception, uh, because I don't think that the machines can have emotions, and therefore they shouldn't be displaying. You know, if you have money, you're not getting the robot to, like, watch your grandma, to me. Yes. You know, yes. like, if you, if it's when you have Medicaid, and that you only get approved for automated caregiving or automated home attendant, you know, that's what I worry about. And if we're creating a set of policies that doesn't prohibit that, that we're ostensibly like investing in a system that we all know is ineffective and substandard um, versus so much the robots being so lifelike a lot of the time. 
Um, so yeah, that was like my thought on that. But I also, I have to say, I'm impressed that you, you know, scrolling back to the beginning and about you being on the committee, uh, the, the federal committee on national health, that you're so optimistic because in this moment, I mean, first of all, to be in that committee in the 45 era, and then I I just, (laughs) like, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever applied for a home attendant, but it's like a super Kafka-esque, like, experience. I just, do you, like, this is what I'm asking, like, who is the audience is kind of, I think everybody can get down with the critiques, but like, who do you see professionally as kind of enacting and fighting for on this level? Not just saying XYZ is bad and XYZ is good and we should fight for it, but are actually kind of working with you to build up this thing that can kind of intervene on the behalf of humanity to say these are kind of what the priorities should be and like creating the legal framework to enact that. And plus working with the movement. Well, I mean, just to come back to your point about, you know, being on a federal advisory committee in the 45 era, absolutely. You know, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I think that right now, I mean, the U.S. is in a huge amount of trouble, you know, and I mean, there's a lot that, you know, and, and frankly, the reason I stay on the committee is because I mean, my term goes till 2022 or 23, I believe. And, you know, if, uh, and, and, and really the sine qua non of getting something positive done is, you know, a new, another president. Right. You can't really get much done federally at this point with this group in charge. And so, you know, but but I think we're laying the groundwork for that, which is a positive thing. And I think the other thing that I frankly will plan to add to the agenda, if I can, is protection for um, experts within the government from political interference with what they do. Because I think that if you look at, you know, some of the biggest problems with COVID right now, I mean, look at the CDC on aerosol transmission. Right. That was something that was put up. It was taken down. Now it's back up. Right. Um, We should not there. And I could give so many other examples of that. And so part of this, it comes out of my teaching administrative law and out of administrative law. One of the things that I think is most valuable of the modern administrative state is that we bring together and balance politics, law and science. Right. We have agencies like the CDC or HHS or other places that when they function properly, yes, they have some political input. But they also have people that have like been there for years or decades that sort of have a very deep understanding of the underlying uh, technology and the underlying uh, medical dynamics, and that those people have some autonomy and can be a transmission belt between the best of research and the ultimate decision makers and policymakers, right? Um, that's where I am. Now, I have to say, like, in terms of a movement, I am less connected to movements. You know, I am much more, I'm, I'm somebody that I think is is trying to work within existing infrastructures of professions like, you know, the bar or other things, which has, has also disappointed many this year, has certainly disappointed me in its treatments of bar exams and others. And I do expect often these institutions are going to fail, but I think that it's it's really critical to have a, a, a conversation and an entry point from movements to institutions. And I think the academy can do that at its best. And I'm reminded of something that Nancy Fraser said, which is that a lot of times the uh, critical theory is the home of the oppositional wing of a critical public and the critical wing of an oppositional public, you know? And so you've got to have, I think you bring together both ideally, but I mean, I think that that's, and it's, it's something that's, it's hard, you know, but I think that when I look, for example, at the recent research that I think Madeline Ellish published about sort of the adoption of an AI system in the Duke University Hospital Center, where you got inputs and you got participation along 
all sorts of lines, including participation that sort of reversed usual hierarchies. So nurses were telling doctors what to do in certain contexts because, you know, in, because of the way the AI was deployed. Um, that's positive, right? That's sort of a positive way in which that can be done. I'm reminded also of, um, there's studies recently that showed that nursing homes that had unions for the workers had less rate of infection and less mortality, in part because a strong union was able to demand personal protective equipment. That, to me, is a transmission belt, right? That's and, and that's unions. I think are at the intersection of both, you know, institutional power and movement organizing and movement building. So I think those are two examples of bringing together folks. And you know, I, I mean, and I think in talking to, in dealing with, working with unions. I'm having a conversation uh, next week with some folks who are activists in the bar of California who think that essentially very big consulting firms and accounting firms are trying to completely alter the rules of legal practice to make it uh, much more corporatized and to uh, sort of take away a lot of the professional autonomy that is now enjoyed by a lot of attorneys in terms of how they do their work. So I'm working with you know, some folks there advising them you know, in, in terms of how to deal with that issue. Uh, so I think that there's there's a number of, of points of entry, right, that we can sort of push here. And there's going to be some very interesting co- political coalitions down the line, um, say, of, of smaller tech against bigger tech. That might be one of them. Uh, but it is it is a really interesting area. And you're right to say, in terms of audience, in terms of, uh, oh, and the last thing I would say in terms of audience is, like, I love working with Taiwan and Australia right now. Um, I feel like there are just so many ways in which American politics is bogged down and there's very little hope of, even in a, in a blue state like New York, of, of much uh, movement in many areas. I do think that in Taiwan and Australia, I see a much better dialogue between experts and between professions and the national government in things like automated decision-making. So for example, there's this research network on automated decision-making in Australia that I'm part of. And I just see that that dialogue being much more robust there. And I think that's got to be part of our global vision as well, is to say, hey, there might be, it may be that the U.S. is stuck in a bit or is just in repair mode for the next several years. Um, but then there are other jurisdictions that can be more forward-looking in governance of AI and robotics. And that's, I'm really glad to be part of that conversation as well. Speaking of Australia, I was thinking about our mutual friend, law professor Julia Powells, and she's always talking about the the, the last chapter question of critical <laughs> tech, um, meaning that you have all the ninety percent of the book is exploring like all the different challenges and constraints, et cetera, et cetera, and the last chapter is where people get to the solution space. And I mean, I think that in terms of my book, like the last chapter, uh, the second to last chapter has some very concrete stuff on modern monetary theory on universal-based income, universal-basic services. So I think like that is, that's where I find my most hope is I have, in the U.S. in particular, but also in international dialogue about how we take control of the money system again in a democratic fashion. And, you know, that I think is going to fund a lot of the proposals for reform that are in the individual chapters on medicine, education, um, journalism, other areas. I think that when it comes to, you know, the, the, why the last chapter of my book was sort of looking into the culture of AI and robotics, I think it's because I was trying to look for examples both of where is the fatalism coming from, because I sense a lot of fatalism in this policy space. I think a lot of people are just saying, oh, you know, it's, it's, 
it all moves so fast and legislators are too stupid and too checked out to even understand what's going on with AI and robotics, et cetera. And I think a lot of that fatalism comes out of, out of culture, uh, not just pop culture, but like uh, <laughs> higher, high culture, middle brow, literary <laughs> works, et cetera. Um, but it's remarkable, you know, that there's also examples I think out there that I try to explore that I think are much more positive and much more uh, illuminating about why stopping this drift is necessary. And I see that in places like Taiwan, where I see people like Audrey Tang leading civic tech movements, and I see I see the response to the pandemic has such a civil society element to it. And there are, you know, they're bringing together people in law, computer science, uh, other logistical fields to talk about the future of autonomous vehicles in ways that have direct policy impact. All those things are happening there, and they're happening in many jurisdictions. And I just, the more I learn about them, the happier I am about, you know, where where we're headed. I think also that, you know, there's so much to just learn from other places. And that's one thing I'm, I, I'm really proud about about this book as opposed to Black Box is Black Box was really a very American book. It really looked very much at American companies, American examples. I tried hard to find very relatable case studies from around the world in new laws of robotics that could be um, sort of brought to a lot larger audience, you know, and, and I, and I needed to talk to scholars and, and experts in those areas to do that. So I think that would be my argument would be that uh, ultimately in looking for hope, especially in some very difficult times in the U S to look beyond and look at some of these discourses that are coming out of uh, jurisdictions around the world where there's just so much to, to learn from and to be and to be heartened by. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time to come on the show. I'm always like, I feel like everybody is so incredibly overworked and particularly the academics who agreed to come on the show <laughs> beginning of the fall semester of uh, COVID-2020. I feel like very, very, very appreciative. So thank you again. And I just wanted to give you a chance if there were, it could be anything that you would like to recommend to our listeners to read, listen, watch? You know, it's, I, I think that I'm just sort of looking over some of the recent uh, books that I was reading that I, I really enjoyed and just sort of felt that uh, would be outside of the direct line of sight of um, uh, tech, tech policy. You know, so one of them is uh, a book called Competition is Killing Us by Michelle Meager. Uh, and the subtitle is How Big Business is Harming Our Society and Planet and What to Do About It. And I think that, you know, what I love about Michelle's book and about some other recent books in, on antitrust by um, Zephyr Teachow, um, David Dayan, and Matt Stoller is that all these books, oh, and Competition Overdose by Ariel Azrahi and Ezra uh, and, and um, Maurice Stuck, is that all those books point to underlying problems in the economic system that are either causing or exacerbating bad technology and bad human relationships with technology. And so I think that, you know, the, as I read in these areas, as, as oh, and Stephanie Kelton's brilliant book, The Deficit Myth, very similar, right? And so I think of my role in the sort of AI ethics law and policy debate is to bring the money question in. I'm really trying to bring in the sort of the, I'm bringing in the money and I'm bringing in some metaphysics. And I know most people aren't going to, they, they may not necessarily buy into the metaphysics, but I'm sure they're going to really care about the money. <laughs> and they're going to, and, and the reason why I think I have something to say about it is because of the brilliant work done 
by people like Michelle Meager, Stephanie Kelton, uh, Zephyr Teachout, David Day, and Matt Stoller, and, and sort of now analyzing our economy and thinking about how we got to the point where such a small group of firms has such enormous power over our lives and over the future development of AI in, in so many fields. So that is the um, that would be where I would go from here is to sort of make a, a concerted pitch for political economy. Oh, and the other thing is I would recommend watching and following the LPE blog at LPE blog on Twitter and at LPE project for law and political economy project. Um, this is just a tremendous group with some real activists, uh, New York activist, uh, Raul Carrillo is involved, Lou Corrine, Corinne Blaylock, Amy Kapchinsky. These are all people I deeply admire and they're doing amazing work to bring together the best of legal and policy scholarship for a wide audience and to bring in you know, democratic discussions of things like uh, uh, the future of policing and the future of community input in self-governance in both in education and in so many other areas. So thanks, sorry for a lengthy response, but there's just so much that I'm excited about. So I wanted to recommend all that. No, I love that. That's like all my phone calls with people. You just dropped a whole syllabus. I appreciate <laughs> it. Definitely people can check it out in their show notes. Um, Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is the We Be Imagining podcast at Columbia University's The American Assembly and the Insight Center. I'm Jay Khadija Abdurakman. You can find me on Twitter at Up From The Cracks. Um, Frank, I don't know if you want to shout out a particular place where people can buy your book or your social media. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Did you want to shout something out? Oh, sure. I'm just at Frank Pasquale on Twitter, P-A-S-Q-U-A-L-E. And um, yeah, I've got a little link in my bio for the book. And thanks so much to you and Elon. This is really a wonderful conversation. Oh, thanks so much. Bye, y'all. Bye.